Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? Um, and when he did, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? Minister to you, then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, my wife and Jamie and I have celebrated our eight years of being together this year. And yes, it's great. Um, but um, the story I'm going to share in a moment stems from our engagement days, and I'm not proud of it, um, but a little bit of self-deprecation is good for humility's sake, um, and it will illustrate my point. So when we were engaged, um, Jamie was out with some girlfriends enjoying a night out at a cafe, restaurant, and um, I had the privilege of staying home, and... yeah, staying home, and I, I um, was, was playing video games uh, at the time with my cousin and brother who were up in Queensland online. And we're playing this game called StarCraft II. And it was... <laughs> some supporters there. Uh, and, and I was happily playing along, you know, winning or losing. I can't remember which one it was. And I received this phone call of a sudden from Jamie. And I pick it up. And Jamie's on the other end. She says, there's a gang fight. Sorry? Yeah, there's a gang fight. There's, there's people outside the restaurant. We're in lockdown. And there's two gangs throwing chairs and fists at each other. And it was full on. And, and I'm thinking, well, wow, this is intense. But what can I do about it? I'm in here in my room playing a video game, winning or losing, can't remember. <laughs> But I can't do anything about it. I'm not a police. I, I, I'm here and she's over there. And I kind of was a bit dismissive in the sense, kind of like, okay, yeah, that's great. Um, let's, let's move on um, so I can get back to my game. 
Yes, I know, you're all judging me now. <laughs> You've all had your moments too. Uh, so I um, quickly ushered her off the phone and continued to, to play um, my video game. And it was only later, not too much longer, long after that, I was just stricken in my conscience. I had prioritised a fantasy game, Pixels, over real-life fiancé at the time, and that was disgusting. And I knew I had let her down. Now, I know that on one level, yes, you know, the reality hadn't changed. I, I still couldn't do anything. I wasn't there. I wasn't, I'm, not the, I'm not part of the police force. I couldn't arrange for a task force to go over there and whisk her out of that situation. But that was not the point. And she knew that. She called me because what she wanted was an affirmation of, of my security in presence over the phone and for me to be there in that moment. Um, and it wasn't like a, some sort of trivial uh, fight either um, in the sense because she ended up having to go to court and testify about it. So she just wanted me to be there for her in that presence. But I missed my opportunity. And instead what I had shown her in that moment that my heart placed greater value on my video game over her. And my actions revealed a heart posture at that point of viewing secondary, not even secondary, way down the list, something as greater and more important than her in that moment. And in today's passage, we're going to see uh, that... How we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ reveals our heart condition towards Christ. Just like in, in that situation, my heart condition was revealed in that moment of, of placing greater emphasis and priority on the video game. Likewise, how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ will reveal our heart condition actually to Christ. Do we place and value Christ in his right places first in our lives or do we not? Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you are God, you are King of all, and yet you humbled yourself through Jesus Christ to reveal the Father to us in flesh. You showed us what it means to be loved by you, by how Christ walked this earth, showing with great kindness and compassion your love to people and revealing to us your love for all humanity, but especially your elect. And this was shown by your death on the cross. So as we look at today's passage, may we have our hearts reinvigorated, being reminded that it's because of your death on that cross, your willingness to submit to the Father's will, that we can even have a heart that is changed for you, Christ, and that we respond out of that posture. In your name, through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so uh, we, uh, we're going to begin with looking at verses 31 to 33. And the point that I want us to understand from 31 to 33 is that Jesus will judge all people. He will judge all people and it will reveal two camps, the righteous and the cursed. Verses 31 to 33, Jesus will, re will judge all people, revealing two camps, the righteous and the cursed. We read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So in these verses, we see 
the self-title of the Son of Man in reference to Jesus. Jesus is referring to himself here. And he's saying he will, at the end of the age, as we've been looking in the past sermons, talking about what is going to happen at the end of the age, our time here on earth, when the kingdom of God is established at last in full revelation, that Jesus will be that king. He will be seated on that throne. Throughout the gospel accounts, we see a Jesus who is humble and lowly and meek. And yet, this is only one dimension of Jesus. We also, as we read the scriptures, see this Jesus who is righteous, who is strong, who is larger than life and triumphant, spectacular and enthroned. And this is the image that we see here. Jesus coming enthroned king in all his glory with angels surrounding him and all of the nations before him. This is Jesus as well. We see in verse 32, humanity is the sand of the seashore before Jesus. No one is missing out on this opportunity. Everyone is before Jesus. Whether they were a believer in their life or whether they were an unbeliever, all are before Jesus in his presence underneath the kingly majesty of his executing divine justice. And he is given authority to judge. There won't be anyone who avoids the judgment. No one will avoid it. No one will be able to escape his perception. And we read this as well, that in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All humanity under Jesus with their every secret thing, whether good or evil, before him in judgment. This is a sobering reminder of how we live our lives. There's no inconsequential moment, no inconsequential action, no secret hiddenness that we can get away with that no one knows because we're secretly doing it in our room or we've secretly said it in our hearts. We are told in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere that no secret thing will remain. Everything will be disclosed. So we need to be aware to not mask our sinfulness under the guise that no one sees it. And no one sees it. And yet, we don't need to feel condemnation or any fear of trepidation of that if we are in Christ. Because we're told that in Christ there is no condemnation for those who believe in him in in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. However, there is still a judgment of sorts. Scripture cannot contradict itself. Every deed will be brought into the open. Every secret thought brought out into the open. But there won't be condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, there will be. Which is a scary reality, which is very sobering. But if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. But... There still is a responsibility to choose and live and think in ways that are honoring of God as we go through our days because there is some form of reward and and judgment that occurs for all people, even those that are in Christ. What that looks like, we're not exactly told, but it is a reality. Well, let's move on to verses 32 and 33. What we see is Jesus separating people, like separating as we read, the sheep from the goats. 
And Jesus refers to him, um, Jesus refers to himself, as we read throughout the New Testament, as the great shepherd, the great shepherd of his people. But here he is the great shepherd of all people. We've got the goats and the sheep. And in his judgment, he is shepherding, he is publicly declaring those sheep that are really his. And he speaks in this way to highlight two types of people, two types of people at the end of the age, the sheep or the goats. There's not three types, there's two. Two. Three, not three, two. I'm an English teacher, I can get away with poor numbers. Uh, He reveals two. There is a clear distinction. There's decisiveness. You're either in Christ and of Christ, or you're not. There's not a camp of, oh, I just do my own thing and and I, you know, I don't need to really worry about it. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And Jesus is separating those. He's finally revealing what we read in the, in the parable in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, that you can look up later in your own time, the wheat growing alongside the tares. Jesus says, until the end of the age, there will be the wheat growing amongst the tares. In other words, the wheat representative of those who are Christ's and in his identity, and the tares those who are not. And he says, the church is going to be mingled with these people who will be of God, and yet others who won't be of God, but they'll be all mingled in there. It'll be kind of hard to distinguish at times. And yet, we read, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, the people who harvest, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And similarly, in this um, story of Jesus, this illustration, what he is saying is that the sheep and goats are already identified. It's not at the end of the age, it's revealed, oh, you are a sheep or a goat. You already are identified as a sheep or a goat. It's just a revealing of what you already are. You don't have to wait until the judgment to see as to whether you are a sheep in the flock. You don't have to wait to see whether you are following Christ or not. And I don't think this is a temptation at our church experiences, but Having grown up in a culture, um, in my own background, it can be, some people can live in fear of the final judgment. Will I, be, will I be a sheep or will I be a goat? But no, we know that in Christ, when you accept Christ, you are his sheep. You're no longer a goat. So you don't need to wait until judgment to see which flock you are in. It's not as though the blindfold is removed. Oh, I'm a sheep, man. I did question that one. <laughs> the time comes, the, the separation will just be publicly acknowledging what people already are. Publicly blessed or publicly cursed. So you have the security of knowing which flock you are in right now. In, verses 30, in verse 33 we read, And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. In verse 33, we see the foreshadowing of the fate of the sheep of the goats. The imagery, imagery splitting the right and the left. And if you read scripture, it becomes quite clear that right is the side of favor, the, the side of esteem and pleasure. And we read, as we read through these, that there's a pronouncement of God's valuation of each. 
the right and the left. In verse 34 and verse 41. So we're going to look at the two flocks right now, which leads us to our second point. Point two, verses 34 to 40, which is inheriting the kingdom will be the righteous. Inheriting the kingdom will be the righteous. That's verses 34 to 40. Read with me verse 34. Then the king will say, that is Jesus, to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wow. Nothing even comes close to the exhilaration that these words should produce in us. Prepared for you. Come to the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There are certain words that can utter, that can be uttered, that can bring such great joy. Will you marry me? Yes. Or, it's a baby girl. We're pregnant. Or, you've got that job. You've got that promotion that you were competing against 500 others. It was really, really tough to get in. These are exhilarating words, but nothing can compare to hearing those words, which we will hear. Come, blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom. These words are almost incomprehensible. That the king would be blessed in us, mere us, dust, grass of the field, flowers of the field, blessed by the Father. We get to inherit this kingdom that's been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Sometimes it's important for us to step back and see the reality of what is actually going on. The reality that you, in Christ, have been chosen before Africans stomped... Africans. Um, elephants. African elephants. <laughs> African elephants stomped on the savannah. Or the blue whale cruised throughout the sea. Or the mighty redwoods touched the sky. Before all of that, God's kingdom was prepared for you, his elect. Prepared for you, the elect. Prepared for us as a community together of the elect. And in verses 35 to 40, we hear that those who inherit the kingdom will be those that have demonstrated hearts transformed by grace. Read with me verses 35 to 40. Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you did it to me. Now, these verses in 35 to 40 could seem, on first appearance, in support of the social justice movement. Now, it's all about caring for the people and the needy. It's about the marginalized in society, those that are oppressed. It's about... Helping those. Or at worst, these verses could actually be advocating a works-based righteousness. You did this for me, therefore I will do this for you. You acted in this way, here's your reward. A reciprocal sort of relationship. 
However, it's important that we recall the breadth of Scripture here. And we understand what's actually going on here. It's judgment. Remember, we've already established that the sheep have been identified. So have the goats. There's already been an establishment of identities, just a separation now of it. So we're not questioning identity here. And in the breadth of Scripture, even at a cursory reading, it becomes abundantly clear that it is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, that one is made right with God. Jesus says it is impossible for man to become right with God on their own. Impossible. Unequivocally impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So instead, what we see happening in verses 35 to 40 is what James argues in chapter 2, 14 to 26. And I strongly recommend you have a look at this in your own time. That's James chapter 2, 14 to 26. And this is what he says, starting in verse 18. This is the essence of it. He says, but someone will say, this is James, he's writing. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You have faith, I have works. You have belief, I have works. James goes on to say this, Show me your faith, your belief, apart from your works, and I will show your, you my faith by my works. Did you catch that last part? And I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, I will show you my belief that works. My belief that works will manifest, my belief will manifest in action. I can say I have $100 million in my bank account and for the small tokenistic gesture of uh, naming your first child or your next child after me, I will give you a small portion of that. Okay, we'll talk later. Um, However, if I don't have any evidence that, well, A, you have to first of all decide whether you want to do that, but if I don't have any evidence of bank account statements to prove that I have that money, or I don't have any evidence that I have a profession that indicates that somehow I could earn that kind of money, or I don't have any evidence of others testifying, yes, he does have that kind of money, then you don't believe it. It's just words. They're empty, hollow words. And likewise, if I say I'm a Christian, but I don't back that up with evidence, then what am I really? Now, don't hear me. We're not to be root pickers, but we are to be fruit pickers. The evidence of the Spirit in us produces fruit that reveals the root. And this is what's going on here. And that's what James is talking about. He's saying, I will show you what I believe to be true and conviction by my actions that outflow from that. This is a really, really important distinction that we make because I don't want anyone to come away from here thinking, that Jesus is saying somehow if I act in a way for the betterment of others, do social justice, that therefore I will be counted as a sheep. No, we must confirm the sheep and goat's identity is already being confirmed and it is a manifest, it is a revealing of a heart condition here. It is a revealing of a heart condition by what is being demonstrated in the, in, um, the sheep and the goats. So Jesus here... He talks about, in this context, of someone saying that they they profess faith in Jesus and they have supported that with tangible care for the body of Christ. Tangible care. 
In this instance, Jesus, you know, it's serving Jesus in practical ways. Hungry gave me food. Thirsty gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And we see in verses 37 to 39, this is to illustrate a point, rhetorical questions, hypothetical rhetorical questions for the pointed effect of highlighting the inextricable link between God's people and himself. Rhetorical questions serve to highlight the fact that Jesus wasn't tangibly being served by the righteous. And what I mean by that is when people serve Jesus, it's not as though Jesus is before us. It's not as though I'm literally serving Jesus with giving him food. I'm literally serving Jesus by giving him clothes. Jesus isn't there. However, on another level, we are literally serving Jesus when we serve one another. When we're serving one another, we are being faithful in our actions as direct servants for Jesus. Whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you did for me. And the king will answer. He'll say, you did it to one of these least of the brothers or sisters. You did it to me. You did it to me. When we're addressing the needs of one another, when we're addressing the practical, real needs of one another, we are serving Christ. We're actually doing this with Christ. Our flesh Fleshly eyes cannot see this reality, but it is happening. We need spiritual eyes to see it, but it is happening. The transcendent nature of our actions. When we're serving brothers or sisters in Christ, we're serving Christ. You know, when we're serving a brother or sister who are are experiencing an extended health crisis, we're serving Christ. When we're serving our brothers or sisters who are suffering from the prison of depression, loneliness or unbelief. We're serving Christ. When we're encouraging a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling because of marriage difficulties, we're serving Christ. And we are doing this to the least of brothers and sisters. We're doing it for Christ with each one of us realistically being that least. None of us deserve, deserves the attention of the king. What a joy to be able to look forward to this reality that we will hear these words. You demonstrated your faith in action. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come to this flock, sheep. The next part of the passage is is difficult if we actually think about what it's talking about. It's um, very challenging, especially when you think about personally how it will affect your friends and family, which leads us to our final point, verses 41 to 46. We've already established that there are two camps, two flocks, And the other flock does not receive the pleasure of Christ. So verses 41 to 46. Into the fire of hell will be the cursed. 
and to the fire of hell will be the cursed. In these verses, we read the opposite of blessing, the opposite of coming into the presence of the king. And these are sobering words. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The fate of the goats is alarming, terribly sobering if we actually contemplate what it's talking about. Now I need to, I feel given the Given the intensity and severity with which these words ring, spend an aside on the reality of hell. In our society, is an uncomfortable topic to talk about. Um, so much so, I've heard it advised to um, a preacher that they should not actually use the word hell in a sermon because it's so jarring to people when they hear it. They immediately switch off. Because it conjures up these images of this God who's angry and displeased with people, eager to kind of sadistically inflict pain and pleasure. But under the authority of, of the Scriptures, under the compulsion of Christ, we have to talk about hell. We have no choice. Jesus it may surprise you, spoke more on hell than anyone else in the Bible. This tender, meek, mild, gentle, yes, that was Jesus, but he was also firm, convicting, and absolutely certain about truth. And that, to live in a way contrary to God, brings about the wrath, the righteous anger of God. It is an uncomfortable doctrine, and yet it is there. But we also have to recognize, we can't somehow also just think, well, maybe, maybe it's not as severe as what has traditionally been thought. Maybe the words are metaphorical. Maybe, maybe we're not to read this as real. It's allegorical. Well, no, if we take the words of eternal life as real, we have to also correspondingly take the words of the reality of eternal damnation. Now, I don't want us to get too fixated as we go talk about this digression on it. However, it is helpful to think about it in part to motivate us, to spur us into calling others out of that position of hell and to guard our own hearts and souls against hell. It's hard because we know loved ones and friends and family personally that the thought of thinking of them punished, being punished eternally is deeply saddening, terrifying and extremely difficult to bear. There ought to be a sadness in our hearts as we talk about it. It's something that I've actually had to wrestle with personally myself. Um, yeah, the, the reality of it 
at one point, a um, number of years back, was so intense to think that God would do this. How could a loving God do this? Uh, that I had to speak to someone. I sought counsel. And I remember sitting down with someone, actually, this was when I was at Bible College, Sydney Missionary Bible College. I was sitting down with a principal and I was just sharing my wrestle with the doctrine of hell. And in his wisdom, he agreed it was a difficult doctrine to swallow. Difficult doctrine to swallow. And yet he said, we must be prepared to swallow it. Because the Bible paints a picture of its reality. God is love. God is generosity. God is goodness. And God is just and righteous and true. Both must be held in both hands and equally. Because there is a temptation to diminish one of God's attributes of love or holiness over the other. And it's a trap. This is not a God that we read in the Bible. This is a God of our own construction, our own making. What we read of is a God who is equally loving and kind and generous and good and also righteous and just and fair and right. And we would not want it any other way. Think of any moment you've experienced injustice. You know intrinsically that justice requires consequence. It is coming to a realization that God is holy, 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 as we read in Isaiah chapter 6. And yet, Jesus literally went through hell for you. He passed through the greatest degrees of hell that anyone could experience, took on that punishment for you, so that you wouldn't have to have that punishment if you're in Christ. It's not an abstract concept for God. Yes, it is uncomfortable. It's terrifying. And yet we need to hold both realities. Both hands. That's why we read verse 41 to 46. He will say to his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal hellfire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not minister to you? And Jesus will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one or the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Once again, we see a string of rhetorical questions in verses 42 to 43. The hypothetical question, similar to the righteous, it's the inverse of what we've read. For pointed effect of highlighting their lack lack of love for Jesus and their lack of love for his body. This is for those who profess to be Christians. What we see Jesus here saying, your lack of love for the body reveals a lack of love for me in your heart. Their lack of love in extension to one another 
shows their lack of love for God. Their failure to love brothers and sisters correlates in a lack of love for Jesus. That's why Jesus in John 13, 34 to 35, he says, you know, establishing a new commandment, he says this, I give to you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Verse 45 serves to reveal the inextricable link between the faithful actions of Jesus' servants, the unfaithful actions of Jesus' servants, who profess to be servants, and their unfaithful actions directly to Jesus. You did not do this. If you did not do it to the least of them, you did not do it to me. It's important to emphasize that Jesus, once again, is not suggesting a works-based righteousness here. I do this, I get that. He's not suggesting that. But being reminded of James again, he's saying, I will show you my faith by my works. He is saying right here that anyone can make grandiose claims. Anyone can state in strong terms that they're a follower of Jesus. But if, we're, if it's not supported in a life demonstrating love for fellow believers and fruitfulness in the Spirit, then their faith is in question. Today's passage forms and serves as a function to test one's faith's authenticity, to test the genuineness of your faith. Because how we love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is a direct revealer of our eternal destination. A direct revealer. That's why in verse 46, you know, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So my question to us is, how are we practically loving one another? How are we practically loving one another? And you cannot practically love, we cannot practically love one another unless we know one another. The first step to love one another is to know one another. Be invested in each other's lives. Speak to one another. Seek to grow in our understanding and our affection for one another. Are we invested in each other's lives? I think we are. But let's go deeper. Let's go richer. Let's not fall into the rhythm that Sydney promotes. You know, seeking oneself. One's goals for oneself, one's tribe rather than seeking to edify the entire body of Christ in our local church. And as we were listening to the gentleman this morning talking about the body of Christ, also the universal body of Christ, are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ overseas? Are we seeking global opportunities as a church? And individuals to seek to love those who are literally without food. Who are literally hungry. Thirsty. Christians in prison. Now that doesn't mean, you know, we can only be in one place at a time. That's a reality. We can't be in like a Marvel movie where it can be more than one place at a time. We're in one place at a time. So we need to seek opportunities and ways that we could do that through, say, organizations. Um, such as what was talked about this morning, and partnering with missionaries, etc. Now, in saying this, 
This is not. There is a temptation to think, but that's too big. It's too big. And feeling a sense of guilt. But just do something. Do something. Better than nothing. Do one thing. And we are free from guilt. There is now no condemnation, no guilt, no shame in Christ Jesus. He has freed us from that. And the Spirit will guide you. If you're in Christ, the Spirit will guide you. The Spirit did not give us a heart of fear and trepidation, but fear of love. Sorry, a spirit of love. And He will lead you. So let's be reminded that the passage today functions to act as a tester of our faith, to work out the genuine nature of our faith. And this is all and only possible because we can come to the Father because Jesus was rejected by the Father for us. We're blessed and raised in honour because Jesus became a curse for us and was lifted on a tree in shame. We're inheritors of a kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world because it was a definite plan for knowledge of God For Jesus, who did not count it equality, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself of that right kingly position in heaven. He emptied himself of that. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a shameful cross, so that we could have that kingdom of God. So we could be called citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So we could look forward to expectant citizenship in this kingdom, in its arrival when it comes. Because the reality is, before Christ, we were spiritually hungry and thirsty. And Jesus gave us water, living water. He gave us living food, his food, which is his body, his water, his blood on that cross. Each drop, the ground almost surely could not absorb it because of the sacredness that here Jesus, the creator of that very dust, that very wood upon which he hung, that carbon frame of that cross was up there. So he could call children to himself. So he could bring us out of a state of rejection, out of cursedness, into blessing, into righteousness, so we could be his sheep for all time, securing that once and for always, being seated at the right hand of God, established for all time. That is our reality. He was a man who was despised so that we don't have to experience any sort of shame or condemnation from God. He liberated us from the prison of slavery. He clothed us with his righteousness. And each day we walk in that. Each day we walk in that. So how can we not but respond in kindness, compassion and favour towards one another? How can we not love one another, church? How can we not do that? As living an extension of Christ's love for us, individually and collectively, as a body of Christ. Local church in Parramatta called as citizens of the kingdom. Praise God that he did this through Jesus Christ. May this be our reality this week and for all time. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are presented with a simultaneously glorious and sobering picture. Glorious that we could be called yours, be sheep of the great shepherd. With a hope that is guaranteed. With a place of being able to rest in your presence. And the sobering reality that friends and family are destined for hell. And yet, God, you have made a way out of that, that path of hell for those yet in darkness. You have redeemed us out of hell through your Son. And you are the great shepherd established for all time, the great king, kingly shepherd, who has called us to a right way to live in response to that. May this be our truth. Hold it firm in our hearts, because if you don't, it will slip from our heart. But Spirit, glue it firmly, cement it into the very fibre of our being. In your name, through Jesus Christ.